Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. As I'm president of the United States, Iran will never be allowed to have a nuclear weapon. Tensions between China and the United States have been increasing over trade, coronavirus, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and now the South China Sea. It takes a few to make war, but it takes a village and a nation to build peace. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Hi, I'm Naz Modirzadeh, and I'm here today with Richard Atwood, Crisis Group's Chief of Policy, who is covering for Rob. Hi, Richard. Hi, Naz. Great to be here again. Today, we're going to be speaking with Doreen Khalifa, Crisis Group's Senior Analyst for Syria, about the situation on the ground. Doreen is based in Istanbul, has been working on Syria for a long time, travels regularly to the northeast and northwest. Doreen, welcome. Great to have you on. Thank you so much. Great to be here. So, Doreen, this week marks 10 years since the start of the Arab revolutions. It's almost 10 years now that Syria has been in crisis or at war. I think many of our listeners will be familiar with the story. Peaceful protests in 2011 against President Bashir al-Assad met with these brutal crackdowns and morphed into a horrible sectarian war. Hundreds of thousands of Syrians have been killed, upwards of 11 million displaced, so that's well over half the population. Cities devastated, countless lives torn apart. A war that's both fueled and been fueled by geopolitical rivalries that escalated over the past decade. Russia and the West, Iran, Saudi, Turkey and its rivals. There was the huge impact that Syrian refugees had on European politics. The Syrian crisis left the Security Council in New York gridlocked. In some ways, it's been the defining war of the past decade. It has, over, I guess, the last year, been less in the news than it had been before. And partly that's because there's been a lot else going on. But it's also partly because fighting has calmed compared with a few years ago. And we'll talk with you about some of the reasons why and how sustainable that is. But still, Syria is a hugely important conflict. It's important in human terms, with millions still displaced. It's important in geopolitical terms for Syria's neighbours, 
that are hosting millions of Syrians. It's important for Russia and Iran, who are invested in the Assad government's survival. The US still has forces in northeast Syria. Europe is still concerned about the stability of its southern flank, the potential for more refugees. And it's also not over, despite this uneasy stalemate. Much of the country remains outside Damascus's control. So perhaps, Doreen, we could start by, you could start by setting the stage, setting the scene, uh, a sort of update of where things stand. What does the Syrian government and its allies control and what's happening in areas outside its control? You're absolutely correct, Richard. Syria today has been witnessing a fragile yet significant freeze in the conflict that has been ongoing since March of last year. It remains unclear how long it would last. But what we do know is that the front lines have been quite static for almost a year now separating four distinct areas of control. Without getting into a lot of details, but the biggest chunk of areas of control is now under the control of the Syrian government, and it includes some of the largest Syrian cities like Damascus, Aleppo, and Homs. Now, the rest of the country is quite divided into three enclaves. You have the northeast part, where there is some symbolic Russian and regime presence, but is effectively under the control of a U.S.-backed Kurdish-led force, that is ruling over a quarter of the country and is sitting on almost 80% of its natural resources. And then the northwestern parts that are also divided between areas that are under the control of Turkish proxies, where Ankara de facto has the ultimate decision-making authority. And then there is Idlib. Idlib is under the control of a rebel force in a former Al-Qaeda affiliate called Hayat Tahrir al-Sham, or HDS. And also in Idlib, there are over 10,000 Turkish forces today acting as a buffer between the Syrian regime and rebels. Thanks, Doreen. That's a, a great introduction. I'm wondering if you could tell us sort of as we try to get a better picture and as our listeners try to get a better picture of what life is like for Syrians in these in these different and distinct enclaves. Can you tell us what is the sense of, of day-to-day life? What is it like to be in the government-held areas at this point? What is the governance looking like today in government-held parts of Syria? Right. So the government with Russian air support relied heavily on excessive use of air force to recapture areas they had lost to the rebels throughout the war. So they ended up inheriting a significant levels of, of destruction, really. Um, the, the regime is also facing difficulties securing the peripheries of areas they currently control, and they're facing a growing insurgency against it, its forces. Now, when I talk to friends and interlocutors living in government-controlled areas, I hear a lot of frustration about the deteriorating economic situation. The Syrian lira has been in free fall. The economic crisis is really unprecedented. And the problems the regime has with, with its support base are increasingly evident. I mean, amid a pandemic, your average middle-class Syrian has to crowd and, and wait in line for over five hours to get basic food, to get bread, There's increasing malnutrition and poverty, but there's also rising incidents of extortion and looting. Um, If you talk to Syrian officials, they're going to put a lot of blame on Western sanctions. And if you ask Western officials, they would say the crisis is of the regime's own own doing. The reality is somewhere in between, of course. Um, The unintended impact of Western sanctions have made life worse for ordinary Syrians living in government areas. But they're also not the main reason behind the crisis. The Syrian economy has been ravaged by 10 years of war and decades of rampant corruption. The regime has also been outsourcing security to local and often foreign militias that rely heavily on extortion, looting, and smuggling, making life much worse for ordinary Syrians. 
And as I mentioned, the Syrian government lost control over 80% of its natural resources, first to ISIS and then to a Kurdish-led force called the Syrian Democratic Forces. And it really didn't help that the government and the Russian, with Russian support have systematically throughout the war obliterated basic and vital infrastructure in the country as part of a war tactic to put pressure on their opponents. So generally, the economic situation is really, really dire. That said, and despite the extent of the crisis, I don't foresee any serious challenges to the current regime. I doubt that there would be mass mobilization against its leadership. At the end of the day, uh, Syrians are really exhausted of the conflict, and they're well aware of the extent of regime brutality. They don't believe there are any prospects for neither regime change or regime reform, to be honest. And just a follow-up, is the Russian role mainly one of air support and kind of being brought in for military force? Or is there also a role being played in terms of providing other kinds of support to the regime and in regime-held areas? So in addition to Russian military support and air and primarily air cover, Russia has also been playing a diplomatic role and regionally, internationally, but also has been playing a dip- diplomatic role locally. So they have been mediating local reconciliation agreements with a number of rebel groups. Less so today, but throughout the years, they have played an active role diplomatically with a number of opposition groups securing what they call reconciliation deals, but are essentially surrender deals by opposition groups towards Damascus. So they complement the military role they play with a broader diplomatic and also locally focused political initiatives. So, Doreen, if we could move to the northeast, this is where some of the fiercest fighting against ISIS took place some, some years ago. It's now, I understand, controlled mostly by Kurdish forces. There are still U.S. troops there. Uh, there was this idea that they were going to pull out. There was this sort of scramble as people recalibrated and thought the U.S. was going to pull out. Then they didn't pull out. Uh, but what is life like now in, in the areas controlled by Kurdish forces? And, and, and what do you think the future holds for those areas? Yeah, you're absolutely right, Richard. Northeast Syria and America's Kurdish and Arab partners in the fight against ISIS have been at the receiving end of very erratic U.S. decision making which came at a grave cost for stability in the area. Now, today, while the Biden administration is not necessarily expected to pull out of Syria abruptly, the Northeast remains caught in a very D.C.-centric political conversation about America's broader military role abroad. But for those of us who spent a lot of time in the Northeast, we realize what a relatively small U.S. force and investment could actually achieve in terms of preventing conflict, maintaining a high degree of stability, and enhancing the quality of life for millions of Syrians living there. I was in Raqqa last month, and and the city was just remarkably bustling. We sat in a cafe up until midnight discussing broader politics in U.S. elections with, with local activists there, It's just a significant transformation from the ghost town it once was a few years ago. I recall my first trip to Raqqa in 2017, shortly after I was captured from ISIS, and the scale of destruction was just unimaginable. There was not one single building standing. Now, America's quagmire in in, in northeast Syria is that in its war against ISIS, the U.S. chose to partner with a very effective Kurdish force, that is, a Syrian affiliate of a Turkish militant group called the Kurdistan Workers' Party, or the PKK. 
The PKK is designated as a terrorist group by Turkey, the U.S., and the EU, and has been fighting an insurgency against the Turkish state for almost 40 years now. Over the years, Ankara grew impatient with U.S. arms supply and air cover to the Syrian affiliate of this mortal enemy of it, and has decided on several occasions to take things in its own hands and, and launch several military offensives against the group in Syria, the latest of which was in October 2019, when Trump abruptly decided to pull out. Now, it's unclear how long the U.S. can or will stay in northeast Syria, but what is clear is that if the U.S. wants to avoid a violent free-for-all in the area that would absolutely derail its counter-ISIS gains, before it removes its military deterrence, it has to invest a huge deal of political capital to address some of the geopolitical ramifications of its counter-ISIS mission, including trying to find an arrangement that would both address Turkey's perceived national security concerns and protect the area from, from a scramble of dominance. Darren, what, I mean, just to follow up on that, as you say, Turkey, I understand rightly, perceives the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, as essentially very closely linked, almost interwoven with the PKK. Obviously, the PKK fighting, as you say, this long insurgency in Turkey. So clearly for Turkey, the SDF controlling this big chunk of territory on Turkey's border is a problem. I mean, what would a sustainable end or sustainable way of meeting Turkey's security concerns in the northeast look like? I mean, what would the SDF have to do? Well, the SDF has to make some very difficult choices. In our conversations with the SDF leadership, we have been trying to convey to them that it is just mere impossible for them to maintain ties and connections with the PKK, control northeast Syria at a time where the PKK continues its insurgency against the Turkish state. They're going to have to ultimately decide to lose one of these three things. In my view, I think the SDF is moving closer towards trying to distance itself from the PKK um, instead of thinking of a broader PKK-Turkey settlement. So they're trying to take steps to demonstrate that they are more independent, that the decision-making process is more Syrian than it once was. Just last month, we had an interview with the head of the Syrian Democratic Forces, and he spoke openly about PKK presence in Syria and the role, the active role they played in the fight against ISIS. He also spoke openly about a need to find a detente with Turkey. And one of the things he brought up was the need to start removing PKK-trained personnel from Syria. And he said that he commits to that process that has already started and is going to continue to do so. So that is a notable step on their end. But I think they need to demonstrate an ability to, to implement these steps on the ground. And the second very important step they need to make is to seize any uh, attacks on Turkish-controlled parts of Syria. So they need to declare a unilateral ceasefire against Turkish-controlled parts of Syria. And they need to end what they see as a resistance against Turkish occupation. I'm tempted to ask if you think there's any chance that that's realistic, but let me reframe the question as what you see as Turkey's, if you will, kind of end game in Syria, but both in terms of their their concerns regarding the SDF and the PKK, but also, as you said, the role of Turkish proxies in the Northwest. How do you see Turkey's vision of, of what they are looking for, what their goal is in their involvement in Syria at this point? 
I don't think Turkey has an endgame in Syria. Turkey has two policies. One, a counter-terrorist policy and a counter-refugee one. So their definition of terrorism is quite different than how the West sees it. They, they see the YPG as an extension of a terrorist organization, and they see their fight in Syria uh, within the realm of a fight against terrorism. And that objective is going to continue to be there. There is a real, well-entrenched perception of a national security threat coming from northeast Syria, coming from the fact that this group that they think of as terrorists are now controlling 25% of Syria and 80% of its natural resources. They control a paramilitary force of over 100,000 fighters. So for them, Northeast Syria looks a lot like a, a statelet, and it's very worrying for them. Now, the other objective they have is countering um, refugees, and that concern emanates from Idlib, from Northwest Syria. From Ankara's perspective, any potential for a renewed regime offensive on Idlib is going to ultimately lead to a wave of refugees coming their way. And that is, the Turkish economy has been struggling, and there is a widespread perception in Turkey that the economies just can't handle more refugees. They already have over 3 million Syrian refugees. They're already also catering for Syrian IDPs in northwest Syria. So it, it is something very controversial in Turkey. And it's something that they have invested a lot of resources into trying to stop. This is Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Today, we are talking with Darin Khalifa. So let's move to Idlib, to the northwest. As you said, it's controlled by this, this group, Hayat Takhra al-Sham, uh, which has undergone this sort of evolution that you've described and we've described in our reporting. Jolani, the leader of Takhra al-Sham, used to be part of ISIS before it broke from al-Qaeda. He was then part of uh, Jabhat al-Nusra, which was an al-Qaeda affiliate, and over the past few years appears to have distanced the movement from, from al-Qaeda, from global jihadism. Could you talk a little bit about that evolution? What is it actually meant in practice? Should we see it as genuine? Is it, is it a way simply to try to win international engagement or international uh, acceptance? Or has it actually led to sort of practical changes on the ground in Idlib and in, in the way the group behaves? So the Turkish military intervention in Idlib as I said, stopped a year-long Russian-backed regime offensive, right? And since then, Turkey has been sending large numbers of troops and equipments into Idlib to act as a buffer between the rebels and, and the regime. Now, that Turkish military deterrence is significant, of course, but it's not sufficient to, to rule out a potential regime offensive. It basically bought time. And it made relevant a more complex policy question that is the one you're asking today, Richard. Like, who's governing it? What is this group, what has it become? And the group has roots in some of the most radical jihadist groups in the region, including, as you mentioned, the Islamic State of Iraq and al-Qaeda. And the current leader of the group, Abu Muhammad al-Julani, once fought alongside the Islamic State in Iraq and then pledged allegiance to al-Qaeda and later broke his ties with al-Qaeda. But since then, he's been trying to lead the group in a very different strategic and ultimately ideological direction. Jolani and his group stood out from their Iraqi counterparts by refusing to take part in external operations or launching a sectarian warfare similar to the ones ISIL led against Iraqi Shias. Particularly in the last few years, HDS has been trying to reposition themselves as a local Syrian group that has no transnational ties and objectives 
and that is focused primarily on ruling Idlib and defending against regime advance. They've also been systematically going after hardline groups in Idlib, including ISIS and, and Al-Qaeda offshoots. So the group today governs over 3 million Syrians and shares a long border with, with Turkey. They have shown a great deal of pragmatism and willingness to compromise ideologically and militarily in order to keep governing Idlib, to keep control over the territory they have. They're sending all sorts of de-escalatory signals to the West and to Turkey, expressing a desire to move away from their terrorist label. And, and this really raises a broader policy question that we've written extensively about, is how the West can deal with a Syrian group that is very strong, locally rooted, and deeply entrenched in the society, that trying to go after them militarily is just going to come at a grave human cost. The group has also been gradually moving away from its radical roots. But the problem is there's just a policy vacuum. There's simply no playbook on how to deal with them. There is no um, set criteria for a group that has incredibly problematic roots. There's no clear benchmarks for them to follow in order to shred their terrorist label. So that, that's where we're at today. The group has demonstrated a great deal of pragmatism. And for several reasons, being under military pressure, wanting to preserve their control, but also because they have been governing Idlib and governance puts a lot of pressure on the groups to become more pragmatic and more responsive to the needs of the local population. So this, this is where they're at today. They've come a long way. There's still a lot they need to do, especially in terms of their autocratic conduct against voices of dissent within Idlib. There's a lot of rehabilitation that needs to be done in terms of how they treat civil society and how they treat opponents. So they're far from being democratic. They're far from being pluralistic and inclusive, yet they're also far from their terrorist roots. So, uh, Doreen, let's, let's come to that policy dilemma in a moment, because that's a really critical question. But it's true that they've undergone this evolution. But still, this is a movement that was once an Al-Qaeda affiliate. It has a lot of People have been fighting for a long time. I mean, it's a group that perpetrated suicide attacks, some brutal tactics and killings. It's been draconian in, in Idlib. I mean, how genuine do you sense the change is? That's a very tough question to ask how genuine it is. But what I can say is some of the changes that they've undergone are, are rooted in core strategic differences uh, with ISIL and then Al-Qaeda including on the issue of, of conducting external operations. Like at a time where ISIS and Al-Qaeda have made their core essence revolve around the idea of conducting global jihad or foreign operations against foreign targets, Al-Nusra and then HDS have stood far from that, have distanciated themselves from that. The other thing is launching a sectarian warfare so they've been quite consistent throughout the years in staying away from launching um, attacks, systematic attacks against minority groups or against civilians. So, so some of these transformations have been quite rooted and consistent with their behaviors in the last few years. Others, I think, as I said, came across as a result of pressures of governance. So... Things like imposing social norms in the society, things that they've tried but failed to implement. Like for instance, they try to impose a ban on smoking. That didn't go down well at all. So they just walked back their decision. 
it's things like that in which they've grown to become more pragmatic on in terms of trying to impose a draconian Islamist rule. But in terms of distancing themselves from international jihad, I would say that they've been quite consistent. I think it's also clear how they've been going after hardline groups in Idlib that have transnational ties and objectives. So they've proven to be a very useful tool against more hardline groups in Idlib. Doreen, I was struck when I was reading some of Crisis Group's coverage of this situation, and particularly about Jolani, in the question, one, your point that it is uh, incredibly challenging, and I would say perhaps impossible for someone like Jolani and a group like HTS to effectively um, kind of de-link themselves from this terrorist designation, at least in the eyes of certain countries. But I'm wondering, who is the audience of this claim of no longer being a transnational jihadi organization? In other words, when Jolani talks about uh, HTS shifting both strategically, but also in terms of its its conduct and its mindset, who are they seeking to convince about this change? Is it geared towards the local population? Is it the West? Uh, who are they talking to? It's primarily the West. Jelani understands quite well that he's not going to convince Moscow of this transformation. He's not going to convince Damascus. The local population is quite aware of the transformation because they've been on the receiving end and they, they can acknowledge it. One example I can give in terms of the local population, I was able to visit Idlib last month and I spoke to some of the Christian community leaders in Idlib, or what's left of them, really. It's a, it's a very small community. But I, sh- I think just speaking to um, a minority group in Idlib that has really witnessed ISIS and Nusra and then rebel control and then HTS really was eye-opening to me because it really shed light on how far this group has gone uh, moved away from its roots, but also shows the limitations of this transformation. The people I spoke to spoke openly about some of the problems they still have, including their homes that have been confiscated a few years ago. But they also say, today we sit with HDS leadership and we put these complaints in front of them and we discuss it with them for hours and they hear us out. So that kind of dialogue, that kind of pressure the locals are putting on them And they know they need to respond because today they're no longer one militia group amongst many. They are the ones in control now and have to be responsive to the local population. So that's the kind of transformation that happened on the ground. Now, to your question, Jolani is directing this message to the West primarily because uh, it's very clear in the leaderships, in HDS's leaderships, thinking that in order to preserve their control over Idlib, in order to preserve their governance, they need Turkish military deterrence. They are not going to be able to uh, push back against Russian and regime advance without Turkish support. Now, Turkey doesn't want to be seen as unilaterally getting involved with such a problematic group. They also think that investing in trying to rehabilitate HDS is a very risky gambit. And there's huge risk of the West turning against them and pointing at them and saying Turkey is trying to whitewash a bunch of jihadists. So 
it's a dilemma, really, because Turkey is in a position that allows them to be able to do that, to rehabilitate them more, to set clear benchmarks for them to follow. But they really don't want to be doing it without Western backing. So it's a situation in which Giuliani is realizing all of this and trying to address Western concerns preemptively without really knowing what is it that he or his group can do in order to rehabilitate their image internationally. You know, it's, uh, it's such an interesting dilemma, as you say, Darin, that has really sort of wide, more widely applicable lessons. I mean, if you look out at, at many of the conflicts that, that we're dealing with, you have as protagonists in, in many of those wars, affiliates of ISIS or Al-Qaeda or groups or individuals who rub shoulders with them. And I think international actors tend to sort of draw a line between reconcilable and irreconcilable. It's a line that's drawn with sanctions policy, with designations, terrorist designations, with drone strikes, with whether an actor is considered uh, politically engageable or, or not. And I think a lot of groups on many of today's battlefields are the wrong side of that line. And as Takhar al-Sham has found out, it's very, very difficult to move back across. There isn't a path where you, know, you could have a sort of set of engagement that, that sets conditions for how a group moves back across that line. And really, I think in, in Syria, you were seeing this, that you know, if, if a group is trying to, to sort of change its identity, it's very, very difficult to sort of move back across the line. As you say, there's this sort of uneasy stalemate. There may well be another offensive. There's still a danger of another offensive by the regime, assuming that the Russians would, would back that into Idlib. The situation in the northeast is far from settled. What do you think the end game for Syria's conflict is? I mean, presumably this is unacceptable to the regime that parts of the country are beyond its control. And yet another round of fighting would be hugely destructive, could potentially cause a lot more people to be displaced. Turkey very, very opposed, as you say, to, to another offensive in Idlib. In a best case scenario, what do the next few years look like? And does this current stalemate contribute in any way to an eventual settlement of the conflict? So, I mean, I've been contemplating this question for so many years. What would an end state to this conflict look like? And I've, I've come to conclude that I, I don't think there is going to be a political settlement in the sense of a nationwide settlement along the lines of Security Council Resolution 2254, as we have envisioned it in 2014. But there also might not be a military solution because... Uh, the regime's ability to regain territory uh, militarily with Russian backing is running up against regional and international forces who have invested quite a lot in stopping that from happening, whether it's U.S. presence in the Northeast or Turkish presence in, in the remaining parts of Northwest Syria, including in Idlib. So I would say the best of the worst options we have today is an extended stalemate is trying to consolidate the current freeze in the conflict, the current de facto nationwide ceasefire, and, and transforming that into something more sustainable. Now, in that scenario, I think a lot of focus should be given to a number of things. One, consolidating the current, the current front lines, um, the current ceasefire, but also as I mentioned earlier, rectifying some of the ramifications of the U.S. counter-ISIS war, uh, including trying to find diplomatic arrangements that would spare the area farther conflict through agreements between or arrangements between Turkey and the Kurdish-led forces. And last but not least, 
trying to make life less miserable for the Syrians living in Syria today, whether it's in government-held areas or in northern Syria. This needs to be a priority because the situation is increasingly deteriorating. Yes, the conflict, the war has relatively stopped for a year, but the economic situation is quite dire and it really needs massive international support and rallying support towards that end. Maybe we could just end on one sort of more personal question. You're Egyptian. It's now 10 years since the start of the Arab revolutions. Uh, looking back over the last decade, how does the, the events of Egypt itself, Tunisia, Syria, Yemen, other parts of the Arab world, what is your general sense from what's happened and what the future holds? Yeah, um, if you had asked me 10 years ago if, <laughs> if I would be sitting and talking to people like Jolani and thinking that the best outcome we might have today is trying to rehabilitate some of the groups that we're talking about, I would have thought that's, that's crazy talk. But the last 10 years have really taught us a lot. It's very, it's very personal to me as an Arab and as an Egyptian, as someone who spent the last eight years of my life working on Syria with an eye in Egypt. Um, it's very emotional. It's very personal. But I also think there are very hard lessons that we've learned. And the realization of the extent of the br brutality that some of the regimes in the region can use against civilians is also quite eye-opening in what change can bring. And the limitations to that are, are, are quite significant. So I don't think I answered your question because it's a very tough one and I have been thinking about it all day uh, because it is the anniversary of the Egyptian revolution. And I've been looking at photos of myself 10 years ago and, and it's, I have all sorts of mixed feelings and emotions about it, but uh, it's an ongoing struggle. Doreen, thank you so much. It's always really so enlightening talking to you. Yes, thank you, Doreen. Thanks a lot, Richard. Thanks, Naz. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Well, Richard, uh, what a remarkable conversation and uh, what a remarkable analyst Doreen is. I thought so many of the things she said were were striking. I thought that her reference to the idea that Turkey is engaging in both counterterrorism and a counter-refugee policy was so interesting, this idea that there is both a desire to kind of engage in and develop their own approach to counterterrorism, but also at this point, a sense that their policy has to expressly avoid more people moving into their country. Yeah, indeed. And of course, for Turkey, counterterrorism is something quite different in, in some cases. I mean, Turkey has had its own problems with ISIS and, and uh, you know, with Al-Qaeda. But for Turkey, of course, it views its struggle against the Kurds also as a counterterrorism policy. And in that sense, U.S., European support of the SDF has been so difficult for Turkey to, to swallow. I mean, I'm struck very much by the dilemma in Idlib and, and how people should view the transformation. I mean, there's no doubt that HTS has genuinely changed, but what that means in terms of policy, what that means in terms of policy for the new US administration or, or for Europe, which has put a lot of its humanitarian support on hold in, in the Northwest. You know, I think those are really big and, uh, and interesting questions. I, I don't know, Naz, I remember in 2011 watching, you know, these thousands of people on Tahrir Square and mm. this sort of moment of of anticipation. This was at the time when, you know, Hosni Mubarak had first made his sort of half-hearted statement. And then a few days later, he was ousted and this sort of sense of, of optimism that was sort of pulsating around the region. And, 
and you think where it is now and, um, you know, everything that people in the region and Syrians in particular have, have lived through, it's really just, uh, just extraordinary. Absolutely. And I was thinking while Doreen was talking that there's, I think, in some ways, a question of how much our discourse about war or about terrorism swallows the the idea of revolution, right? That how much of what is left in Syria, whether it's it's Jolani and HTS or other groups, how much can we talk about this as a revolutionary moment or movement anymore? Maybe not at all, but uh, it was really striking thought, the idea that in these 10 years, as she said, the difficult lessons that the people in many of these countries have learned and, and sort of what is left of their of what they want and the kinds of change that they are seeking. Yeah, great question and, and great conversation. Absolutely. Well, I think we'll close it there, but uh, of course we'll continue with these themes and these kinds of conversations. I would uh, welcome our listeners to send any questions that they might have for future podcasts to media at crisisgroup.org. And uh, please leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. And of course, as always, we thank the Crisis Group team that is responsible for putting this podcast together. Thanks so much, Richard, to you and have a great week, everyone. Hold Your Fire, a podcast by the International Crisis Group. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.